All right, check one, check two. This is it. Welcome to the Cannabis Coffee Hour with your host, me, Rob Cantrell. Oh, yeah, I got a great episode, an exciting episode, an awesome guest, an old friend. Uh, He's written books. He's been in television shows. He does comedy shows. Uh, He writes scripts. He's in L.A. He's one of my good friends. He's actually lived in my old apartment. But you may, he was in uh, the show Silicon Valley on HBO. He was on Dear White People. He was on Two Broke Chicks. He just wrote this book uh, about a murder mystery with the Grateful Dead uh, involved. And it's all in California. This dude is dope. One of the more interesting, cool people I know. Please give it up for Mr. Cornelius Peter, everybody. Thanks. Hey, Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. So good to see you, Rob. Good to see you, Cornelius. Yes, I did move into your apartment and I still have some of your stuff, believe it or not. Oh, shit. I do. Want to know what I have of yours sitting right in front of me right now? Oh, what do you have? I have your sesh tray. Your weed tray that was carved out of wood, left it behind in LA almost 20 years ago. And I've been using it ever since. I still use it. I'm holding it up to the camera for the Patreon people to see. Oh, but. yeah, that's a good wooden. Uh, that looks like something I would definitely pick up. When yeah, I, it's yeah. last test of time for sure. It served me extremely well. It has seen some heavy use in the last two decades. I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. <laughs> Cornelius is super interested. He writes, he performs, but he was also uh, one of my, you know, in the comedy world, one of my uh, favorite and earliest stoner friends. But he was working in dispensaries really early on in California, which I always found fascinating. That's Uh, true. Yeah. What year did you work? I mean, even when it was underground, like you were working in cannabis, that was kind of your side gig. Yeah, it has been my side. I mean, selling weed, to be honest, I think the last two years with COVID and everything are the only two years since I was uh, about 18 years old that I did not sell weed. Uh, (laughs) Legally or illegally, I started early. So uh, if you want to trace it all the way back, I started selling weed in college um and did it just as a side gig you know just to pay for my own weed right it's sort of the whole buy now break it up you get an eighth and then sell it up so you know whatever so i did that for years and years um and then what i actually the smart way to go everybody to tell you the truth i've could i I think i probably could have bought a hemi truck with all the money (laughs) i've spent yeah i mean my goal was always just to not spend money on weed myself so you know you just mark it up two bucks a piece, an eighth or five bucks an eighth, and then you get yours paid for. And, you know, it's all good. Everybody gets the weed. Um, so I did that forever. You know, uh, I did some more adventurous stuff. There were some planes involved. There was some uh, swag from another country involved for a while. But I don't want to get too into that. That's all. No, coming no, in my- that's for another book, my man. You well, need to keep that under wraps. <laughs> going to write a book about this whole thing. Um, I already did a one-man show about it. I mean, I've been in this business so long. Let me put it this way. I did a one-man show about working in the cannabis industry, and that show took place in 2009. I was already looking back on my career in 2009. Um, But as as far as the quote-unquote legit uh, medical marijuana, what we called it back then when I 
started in the legit business, it was the medical marijuana movement. Yep. And I started super early. So I moved back to Los Angeles in 2002. Uh, and I moved in with our mutual friend, Ungayo Bilam, who is a stoner legend at this point. Uh, he yeah, he the- was one of my first guests on the show. Oh, yeah, he's I mean, he is. He's a stoner legend. Uh, yeah, I, I give him guy. I say the two biggest smokers I know or have set like you want to you don't want to go toe to toe. Definitely <laughs> Doug Benson and Ngayo are like yeah. guys that really could hang with Snoop Dogg or be real and not even sweat it. Absolutely. Just sort of all day, every day, just impenetrable. I think that guy. <laughs> yeah, but- they're on a mission from God. <laughs> He really knows his shit now, too, though. I mean, not that he didn't before. He always but he, knew his stuff. That's why I always he, respected him. And he always uh, he always was a part of the activism very early on. So very normal and all that stuff very early on. Absolutely. So he was in it way before I uh, was involved. But when I came back from New, I was living in New York and I, I moved to Los Angeles. So I moved in with him and, well, about 12 or 13 other people uh, in this crazy big place called the Sugar Shack. Um, and so he I was crashed doing- there one night. It, there was a whole, full hip hop band living in this hippie commune in Los Angeles. It was fascinating and a it very was- cool scene. I, ne- I I dipped my toe in it like for 24 hours. And uh, it was like, you know, it was like, a you know, a 90s, uh, you know, video, man. It was a trip. Yeah. It was it was intense. It was I mean, it was a I say it was a commune without any manifesto. We just were, you know, it was a dozen or so at any given time. It was 10 to 15 people living together. The band lived out in the garage part of it. Um, We had a performance space where we could throw parties. The band would play. We'd have hundreds of people. I remember some of the first parties we had were fundraisers for Burning Man. I was like, what the hell is Burning Man? They're like, oh, yeah, we got to raise money for our town. I'm like, all right, whatever. I don't care. It's happening in my living room. You know, I go to bed and find German backpackers in my room already. I'm like, hey, everybody. Um, But so anyway, I moved. it was a trippy scene, man. It really was Mars Hotel. It was. It was absolutely insane. But uh, that was how I got involved with cannabis, because at the time, Ngayo was doing uh, benefits for uh, something called Americans for Safe Access, which is a fantastic organization. They have done so much to get patients' rights pushed through and just get people, get medical marijuana patients, real sick people, cancer patients, people with all sorts of ailments, uh, access to cannabis and that's what they were fighting for and that was always my focus as well when i worked in the industry so i started out doing a couple of benefits for them uh, at the punchline in san francisco which you know you used to play all the time i think still do um and it was really fun i mean i think on those benefits we had doug benson i know uh uh, Sarah Silverman was on there. Uh, I remember this because one of the first things I did when I moved back to California was uh, mule weed for them back to L.A. Because when we did the ASA benefit, we all got paid in weed. But Sarah Silverman and Doug, and they all had careers. They were getting on planes and going off to shows. And I was just driving back to L.A. So I had to shuttle everybody's weed back to L.A. for them. Um, that was really sort of the beginning of my legit career. But then shortly thereafter. Very kind uh, of you. Say again. That was very kind of you. Yeah, well, I had to do it, you know. Um, 
but so about 2003, the beginning of 2003, some folks that had been coming down um, and staying at the Sugar Shack opened uh, what is now the oldest dispensary in Los Angeles. Uh, the oldest continuously operating dispensary in Los Angeles. It was called Los Angeles Patients and Caregivers Group. Um, they started, yeah, about 2003. So when they opened up, there was no cannabis dispensary in Los Angeles at the time. One had just been raided and shut down by the feds. So this was how it was back then. You would open up. Remember this. You would get raided by the feds. They would shut you down. They would take all the weed. They usually didn't really arrest people unless they felt they had somebody that they could really make an example of. Most of the dispensary, at least this is what they told me in the interview. They were like, look, man, the feds are going to bust down the door. They're going to raid us. They're going to arrest us, but they'll probably just let you go. Are you cool with that? And I was like, yeah, I'm cool with that. You know, it was a it, looking back on it. It was a big moment in my life when they asked me, are you willing to get arrested for your belief in cannabis legalization. And at that moment in a job interview, I was like, yeah, I will take that. Risk. <laughs> I'll take that hit for that hit. I will. I was like, fuck it. This is, this is unbelievable. And to be honest, I didn't think we were going to last more than about six weeks. The whole first time, first couple months, we're just waiting for the door to get broken down. And it's really intense. And the people that I was working with during that time are still some of my best friends uh, because it's like a foxhole. You know, you're just you're at war. We were at war. We were in the drug war and we were just on the other side of the drug war. Um, and we did it together and we're still good friends. We just had a reunion like a year ago. Some people are still in the business and doing really, really well. And some people have left it completely. Um, but they're all three still there. Neil it, uh, Cornelius. It, it is not the same people. It, uh, you know, the boss sold it yeah, five or six years ago, um, but it's still there. And there's still a great company called Los Angeles Patients and Caregivers Group. It's on Santa Monica Boulevard. And I do believe it is now the oldest continuously operating dispensary in Los Angeles. Others have been around about the same time, but they get shut down and then have to start again. We somehow miraculously LAPCG never actually got raided ourselves. Uh, we had another club in 2005 that got raided. We opened in 2005, they got raided in 2006. A lot of people, that was a really ugly raid. They smashed everything in the place for no reason. It was, you know, guns and, and dogs and all that stuff. It was really ugly. I mean, back then, we're talking about the Bush administration, dude. It was like, you Tommy know- Tommy Chong went to jail. Tommy Chong went to jail. Tommy Chong went to jail for bongs, dude. It wasn't even- <laughs> It was just like they tricked him into sending bongs to Pennsylvania and thanked <laughs> him. It was brutal. But that was what was going it's on. Different back then. world, different world, different world. We've lived a long, good life. I know. And but I'm tell so me how long. OK, slow down, Cornelius. you got so much. We only got yeah. 45 minutes and I love you. <laughs> but just for the listeners, how and then we'll go right into your dope ass book, because I don't want to talk about this forever. I want to get into your book book. Because uh, I think it's awesome and I love you as a writer. But uh, how long did you actually work in the dispensary? Like, here, sir, this is what you should smoke. Oh, gosh. I mean, until about 2014. So over 10 years. Yeah. Over a yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. And is, is it a good job, a bad job? I mean, I've talked to people. It's just when you're getting high all the time at the place. <laughs> 
and you, it's it's a little mundane. Where do you rate it? Is it? I guess it's better than working at like Wendy's or maybe The Gap, but <laughs> yeah, not but as good as being a comedian. Is it like there's somewhere? Well, I mean, to use a corny expression, it beats digging ditches, and yeah. that's actually that's what yeah. I was doing. Or working in a dispensary, I was working construction. There was a lot of ditch digging. So yeah, totally. As a direct comparison, it does beat digging ditches, but it is not as fun as being a comedian. People think, especially back then, when there was that nobody had ever been to a cannabis dispensary, they're like, that must be paradise. And it's not, it's retail. I mean, <laughs> at the end, it's it's getting high and doing retail, which is not the worst if you love the store. Exactly. So I would say it depends on the person. I think for some people, it's a great job, especially if you love cannabis, you do get to be around it all the time. It makes it better than selling shoes. I, I for sure. And if you uh, love it and there's always new stuff coming out, like I did just drive through Michigan and I went to a dope dispensary. They're blowing up in Ann Arbor. And I, I went in those young college kids were like breaking it down and telling me this and that. And I was asking for outdoor grown and I wanted Northern California and they were showing me the best of Michigan. And so they all knew their shit. And it was just like, oh man, this must be the dopest college job ever, man. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing for the certain type of people or at a certain time in your life. If you're a college student, a young person, an artist who needs a flexible schedule, like that was one thing that was amazing. So I'm an actor and a comedian and a writer, and they were always super cool if I needed to leave for a little bit to go on an audition or anything like that. I think awesome. a lot, of, yeah, a lot of great retail jobs would be like, you're doing what now? Sorry, no, go stock the shelves. But they, you know, and this was different. They'd be like, oh, you got an audition? That's awesome. Good luck. Go for it. You know, it was a wonderful group of people. And I and hope you didn't get in trouble for walking in stinking like weed. They would be like, good job. <laughs> in 2003, that was a huge pleasure. And it was also just so fun because you tell people what you do for a living and they'd be like, what? Oh my God. I didn't even know that was a thing. And like, it was really fun. Plus there was lots of free weed. So that doesn't hurt. You know, we had a, we had, I don't think that they do this at most dispensaries anymore, but part of my pay package when I first started was a gram a pot a day. So every day at the end of the shift, you get to pick your, what you called your staff gram and you just go through, you know, and you had 50 types of pot to choose from. And, you know, for a kid who grew up in New Jersey, smoking Mexican swag weed, you know, this was, it really was paradise for a little while, at least. Yeah, man. I think it's a wonderful life, man. I think that's a, and it's a great gig and you should be thanking your lucky stars back in the day, because the one thing that a lot of younger comics are doing here and I've toyed with, but I've had to get like food jobs and shit over the years. Uh, mm -hmm. It's moving. So a lot of people are movers and that's just really? physical hard labor. Yeah. And Cornelius, I don't think you're up for that. I don't know. That's no, a little rough when you start pushing thirties and forties doing that shit, man. Yeah. I mean, when I was in my twenties or whatever and that, you know, I, maybe I could do stuff like that, but no, I'm almost 50. So, you know, a dispensary job is really not a bad job at all. And again, if you're a person who like, out on weed, uh, which I definitely am, you know, the different strains, the different crosses. I mean, I got really into it. I, I learned to grow after about three or four years of working in dispensary. I wanted to learn more about the plant and how it works. We were also selling clones and plants and stuff and seeds. So I wanted to be able to give people good advice. I had been giving advice that was secondhand, that people told me to tell people, you should tell people to grow this for this long and this and that. But I wanted to try it myself. So I've worked at a bunch of different farms, right? Uh, since then. And just, you know, it's, if you're into it right now, 
What's that? Do you have a plant right now? Are you growing a plant? You live in California. I should tell the, the listeners that you are coming live from California streaming. Yes. And, I, and I could. It's funny because I feel like in California, plant we've come so far with cannabis legalization and everything that plants are not only being grown in people's backyards now, they're actually being grown in people's front yards, which is great. Like my um, neighbor, asked, I was like, hey, those are those are three big pot plants right on the street, right in your front yard. And it's like, you know, we got so much herb in this state that I don't think anybody's going to snatch it up. It's just like, you know, and the cops aren't coming. I could be growing six plants if I want. I'm just lazy. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, growing does take a, a lot of attention and detail. It's a lot like writing a book, which you just it, did over it, it, 300 pages, Cornelius, all this herb smoking. I'm glad it's funny. You even finished uh, uh, cliff notes, but you did it. You knocked right? it out. You put it all together and it sounds dope. Tell us about the big snooze. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. As a lifelong stoner, I did manage to accomplish writing an entire book. Uh, so, you know, stoners out there, you can do it. Don't think you don't have the attention span. Uh, You're the yes. of light. Yeah, I love it, Cornelius. It, it, I, I, it definitely inspires me. I always wanted to write a book. I think everybody has that in them. Not everybody, I, but a certain type of people have that in them. Yeah, a certain type. And if you have one in you, I definitely highly encourage you to write it because it's incredibly gratifying to finally do it. I mean, this is a bucket list item for me. I always wanted to write a book. Um, and I've been writing screenplays for, you know, 15 or 20 years. And the thing about screenplays, they're really fun. But if they don't get made into a movie, which is most of them, then nobody really reads them. They don't really exist in the world. They exist in some executive's computer and he's not reading it. So I wanted to finally write something that I could put out into the world and people would actually get to read and enjoy. And so I proposed it to my girlfriend. I said, you know, I'm thinking about writing a murder mystery and it's about this and that. She said, sounds like a good idea. I was like, really? She said, yeah, you should write that. And so I did. Um, and I'm really proud of it. It's called The Big Snooze, as you mentioned. Um, and it's a murder mystery set in the world of PGA golf. So the whole thing takes place at a golf tournament, professional golf tournament. Um, and it's a mix of like, say, an Agatha Christie whodunit, um, sort of sort of mashed up with the movie Caddyshack. If that makes sense. <laughs> so, I love it already. That's a great description. <laughs> well, thank you. So it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's a comedy for one. I mean, I'm a comedian. All the screenplays I've ever written have been comedies. So it's hopefully uh, very funny. All the people who've read it so far seem to think it's very funny. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's sort of in the vein of like Carl Hyacin and things like that. Um, and it's basically a love letter to Southern California. It takes place in a fictional town called La Siesta, California, a.k.a. The Big Snooze. Um, and it stars uh, 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 the protagonist, is a guy named Duffer McDermott, and he's an ex-cop who always wanted to be a professional golfer. So that's been his goal. Um, and in this book, he gets a chance to finally get to be a professional golfer by playing in this tournament. If he wins the tournament, he gets to join the PGA Tour. His dreams come true. But unfortunately, there's a murder on the first night of the tournament. He gets sucked into the whole thing, and he has to solve the murder and try to win the tournament so that he can go on and play in the PGA Tour. Um, and it's just an old-fashioned whodunit. You know, everybody's a suspect. And how's the Grateful Dead involved? Is he a deadhead? Okay. So how the Grateful Dead is involved is that uh, there's a caddy. My, 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 
main character's caddy is a guy named Grateful Ted. Um, Ted. Yes. And so he's an old hippie. He's sort of like one of those uh, magical, mystical caddy figures like Bagger Vance, right? (laughs) One of the guys who just shows up out of the ether and whispers in the guy's ear, like, you know, just go for it. Or, you know, he, 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 he's his spiritual guru and his name is Grateful Ted. And he has a special talent, which is that he can name every song the Grateful Dead ever played at every concert they ever did in the order they did it. So, you know, the Grateful Dead have played, they played over 3000 concerts in their lifetime. Basically every night, the Grateful Dead play a new concert, uh, played a new show. And every time they played a show, it was different. The songs were different. The song, the, the order of the songs was different or whatever. So Grateful Ted, if you give him a date, he can name the place where the Grateful Dead played and all the songs they played in the order that they played them. Um, and that's how he got his nickname. And, uh, and it's, so it just, it's, we, it's woven into the book and it becomes, becomes part of the plot line. Um, and it's just sort of a, a It's whole a great sub- character. I can see this thing being in a movie, man. I see where you're going with this whole thing. I can't wait to read the, fl- uh, the book. Yeah, I can't wait for you to read it either. And this was really fun. I mean, I was saying to somebody the other night uh, that I when I started the book, I had a pretty good idea that this detective was really fun and that the town was really fun. But when I came up with the character of Grateful Ted, I knew I had a book. I was like, I would want to read this book. This guy is really funny character. And, you know, I would love this to become a movie. But as I said at the beginning, you know, part of the reason I wrote this is because I really wanted the book to exist as a thing uh, on its own. But now that it's here, of course, I'm dying for it to be made into a movie. It's like, yeah, but yeah, I can tell I know where you're going, homie. Uh, you did do this out from your heart. And uh, yeah, you never told to me like, I want to be a book. Right. This was it. This was just something that was in your heart. And you just you didn't do for, do it for the money. You didn't do it for the glory. You did it just to do it, just to see I'm going to do it. And now, it, you know, it's it, but you picked great topics. I love the character. I was going to yeah. ask you a couple questions, but go ahead. What, What's that? I had a couple questions. What's your favorite Grateful Dead song? Oh, man, that is a really hard one. Um, it's always changing for me. But what what what's hitting your pocket right now? What do you got in your pocket right now? Right. I mean, I think probably it's going to have to be it because do three songs count. They go together. So help Slipknot Franklin's Tower uh, help on the way, which goes into Slipknot, which goes into Franklin's Tower. Wow. Um, of songs always gets me going. Franklin's Tower is just sends shivers up my spine every time. It, it's just pure joy. But what I know really fun- if somebody played it, I know it. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and frankly, I, I mean, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> you got to do it. What's the metal? What's the me- melody? Can you do the one but, melody from any of them? And I bet you I can do it. Uh, well, you know, it's like roll away. The do. Oh yeah, ah, that that's the jam, man. That's bringing on home. Roll, yeah, and I don't even know the song, but I just always thought it was roll away the do. <laughs> it, yeah, it could be. It could be. I thought it was about a dude just loving Mountain Dew in the morning. He just got yeah. high and he drank a big fucking thing of Mountain Dew. And he just started it, singing this tune. Jerry probably loved Mountain Dew. Who knows? You oh, never he know. definitely guzzled some Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely guzzled some Mountain Dew on some of those road trips. The one yeah. dude, Alabama getaway is what I've been pumping lately. 
Really? Uh, oh, you Alabama getaway. Right on. That's I just good. like a, some simple good rock and roll has been hitting my soul sure. lately. And then I uh, so, am one that just got I got a hip to. Uh, I saw this dude, Billy Strings, do it live, like one of those oh. live cover joints. And nice. it was so many roads. Do you know that song? Oh, yeah, I do. That's a later Jerry song. Yeah, it's one of it's a one of the few sort of 90s songs that actually got st that stuck in the repertoire. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good one. And Billy Strings is awesome. He just oh, he kills this song. You should see it. It's with uh, it's Kratzman's like Billy and the kids. Yeah, Billy and the kids. Yeah, they just did a live stream recently. And then I was like, what the fuck's this tune? But the dude kills it. And I was yeah. like, I was almost crying. I was like, this is the most beautiful song I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, he crushes it. He crushes it. And it's always fun to hear dead covers by other bands because, you know, I mean, I'm so I was so immersed in this music all my life. I saw my first show at 13. Um, yeah. I saw yeah, I, I was way into it. Um, and I saw um, I, I moved to San Francisco because I wanted to be closer to the Grateful Dead and see more dead shows. Um, and actually, a lot of people did that. <laughs> did for sure. Some of my friends did. For, uh, absolutely. And I mean, this we is going to sound the city on rock and roll. I heard that at, coming out of the Target the other day. Yeah, right. That I mean, hey, uh, Jefferson Starship, that was another San Francisco uh, classic. But, but I, I, mean, I pictured I'm them like I, Grace Slick used to hang with the dead and all that shit. But I, in the 80s, I pictured them looking around and like because the Fillmore and rock and roll and Bill Graham, like, I don't know, the entertainment business in San Francisco and the music scene definitely was like this vibrant thing that set that town on fire you know oh yeah and i used you to could say all you want about the sports teams or whatever but every if you think of san francisco you think of the hippies and the grateful dead you know oh yeah totally and that's what brought me to that city and actually uh in a weird way jerry garcia started my entire career in comedy so <laughs> i how I, did he do that i will tell you right now so I uh, moved to, to San Francisco hoping to get into comedy and I had been applying for jobs at the Punchline Comedy Club as anything, dishwasher, prep cook, door guy, whatever. And I had applied for like three jobs, not gotten any of them. And I had just applied for another job, which I did not get. I forget what that job was. I think it was prep cook and I cannot cook, but I, I really, really wanted to work at the Punchline. And then a day later, I was at the Warfield seeing the Jerry Garcia band. And I ran into the manager of the punchline and he recognized me from the interview the day before. He said, oh, you're a deadhead. I said, yeah, I'm a deadhead. And we started chatting about the dead. I told him I'd seen over 30 shows and that I was here to be close to Jerry and all that kind of stuff. And so we had a really nice chat. The next day he called me up. He said, we're creating a new position here at the punchline. Would you like to come and interview for it? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I went in. He gave me the job. And that's when I found out that the punchline was actually owned by Bill Graham Presents. So by getting my job at the punchline, I also ended up getting a job at the Warfield and the Fillmore. So any show that I wanted to watch at the Fillmore or the Warfield, I would just have to sign up and work the door as like a security guard or whatever. And then I got to see Jerry Garcia for free. I got to see the dead for free. And I got to work for one of my heroes, Bill Graham, he had unfortunately just passed away about four months before I got there. So I just missed meeting the man himself. Uh, but it was a dream come true. It was like just joining this 
whole group of people, like you said, the Grateful Dead, Bill Graham, the Fillmore. That was what I spent my whole life reading about, dreaming about. And then I moved to San Francisco and I hadn't been even, even been there six months. And all of a sudden I'm working for that company. It was unbelievable. That is so trippy. And our lives have kind of taken these weird uh, parallel turns because we like I knew somebody knew our friend. We had mutual friends, but mm -hmm. I started comedy in 1999 in San Francisco. And one of the first clubs I worked was the punchline in San Francisco. So yeah. I came into town in 99 and you had moved back to New York. Yes. For hanging with my college friends. Yeah. And, I remember. Yeah. So and then so and then when I came to New York, I crashed on your couch. I remember that was like the first time we hung out and we we smoked a lot of pot and we talked about comedy and had some beers. And that was about it. I think we went to a couple shows in New York very early on. Mm -hmm. But uh yeah, the first my first check was uh, the punchline was uh, Bill Graham presents. And that tripped me out because I knew all you know, I knew about the Grateful Dead. I knew about Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, I just knew the whole lore of the 60s and 70s. So, yeah, it was a trip, man. That whole area is a trip. It was cool. It was so neat as a kid or while well, I was still a kid at that point. I mean, I was bald already. Let's not be, you know, let's be honest. But uh, going to the offices and like, you know, there's pictures of everybody in the office just with Jerry and with Bob and with Bob Dylan and like all these people. These were just the candid photos. Like if you go to a regular office, everybody's got their kids and stuff like that. It was like a regular office, but all the pictures were of just famous musicians. It was it was really freaky and bizarre, but very cool. Oh, that is cool. Uh, yeah, the Bay Area is a, definitely got a soft spot in the world of cannabis in my heart. Um, and they did a shitload for cannabis legalization. I mean, Prop 215, which we passed in 1996, uh, is what brought, you know, legalized mar medical marijuana. And that has that started the ball rolling to where we are now, which is. And I think at the Fillmore and I know even at the punchline, like all those places like I, you know, I come from the East Coast. So I always went to fish shows. I saw the Grateful Dead at yeah. RFK Stadium. Nice. Uh, I saw, you know, I saw the beasties. I seen everybody uh, on the East yeah. Coast. But uh, I do know that like those venues were very can't like you never worried about smoking pot at the Fillmore. Like you never oh. worried about or at the Warfield or the Shoreline. Any of those Bill Graham venues, there was kind of a they don't bust potheads. Yeah, no, that was the official policy. I can tell you that as somebody worked there. Uh, yeah. because you know, they'd say unless it's bothering another patron like unless somebody is asthmatic and is standing next to somebody who's really puffing hard something like that just don't worry about it don't even don't even say anything and that was i mean this was back in 1996 and uh, most bouncers if you're not starting fights yeah they're not going to mess with you especially on the west coast but on the east coast they just want to <laughs> they'll start a fight for starting fights yeah yeah i mean it's a it's just a different vibe and tip and i was just vibe. I was definitely just up in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago and we were out at, uh, I don't know if you remember the bar Zeitgeist, um, but they have a big back patio and there were just clouds and pot, pot smoke, you know, wafting over occasionally. Nobody said anything. It's just, it's just part of the culture. It's just part of the, you know, the way we live our lives out here, which is so wonderful. And I'm, I'm really glad that it's spreading across the country. I it can't spread any faster as far as you. New York's as as getting crazy, Cornelius. New York's yeah. getting 
crazy. So what's it like in New York? Tell me about right the now. Well, right now it's just nobody gets shake shooken down on the street for it. Like nobody. Like that's awesome. yeah. So and and it's starting to become the norm. If you smell it, it's just not a big deal. And in the uh -huh. park, people like I see full on almost Rasta parties going down. Like people's got nice. speakers. Everybody's firing up and. Uh, uh -huh. I no, said, but uh, the dispensaries haven't kicked in is the only thing. So you still got to know a guy to know a guy. But, you know, and, so I, I'm a little bummed on that. But Massachusetts is wide open and that's getting their dispensary system is really good. I think a lot of it comes to the state. And, you know, if they get a jump on it, you know, but New York is dragging their feet on organizing because I just think there's so much money on the table, maybe. That is part of it. And, you know, I have to say that in California, it hasn't been the greatest thing. I much prefer the medical marijuana system that we had to what we have had since we've had actual legalization, legalization. But one thing, the taxes are outrageous. I mean, I just bought, uh, well, I have a, I have a delivery right here. I can look yeah, at let's tell the people. Okay. Tell the people what's your favorite strain or what do you have right now? Uh, well, my favorite strain is OG Kush. Oh, for wow. sure. You guys have the OG back there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I always think the OG is a little too strong for me. It's not really uh, my take. I know it's the end all to be all, uh, but that's super crystally like that thing. I don't know. It, it's piney and it's, it is strong. I mean, sometimes when you take a hit, so I just got this from my dispensary. This is an OG and it is coming in at 34.44% THC, which is insane. Okay. I mean, that's like what hash used to be like, like yep. this is, absolutely crazy stuff but I, what i love about og is that it has no ceiling really so if you've smoked earlier in the day and you know how sometimes if you've smoked a couple times in the day you smoke later and it doesn't really hit you that well because you've smoked and it's kind of muddy muddy and not that great but with og i feel like if you've smoked it in the morning had a whole nice high and trip and it wears off if you smoke it again it'll hit you just as hard the second time day as it does the first time so i like that and That's i also a point yeah i do get that it always had like it's a very heady um very heady strong punt like almost like yeah it's like hash almost it's almost like doing a dab it is it can be really it can be really really strong and it can be too strong for some people but what i grew to love about it was really more as a person who sells cannabis rather than a person who smokes it because i'd have all these stoners coming to me who smoke all day every day smoke huge blunts you know and they're like what can i smoke that's still gonna work what can i smoke that's still gonna work and the answer was always og kush yeah it's you know? always yeah yeah if you're that is one of those all day every day but out of that all day every day i i go towards cookies these days i do like cookies oh, Cookies is nice I, re I remember when that first came out that was all the rage for a while there and now everything's mixed together it's like i'm so old school that i ask for strains that don't even exist anymore but like what are you talking about old man but i don't know some of the new strains this punch and purple punches and all these wedding cakes and stuff like that but i do know that they're all delicious and they're all super strong I and mean, they're almost getting better and better that's what's trippy about cannabis that it's like you're actually watching plant evolution happen in real time so it's it, wild is that outdoor grown because my new thing is yeah i don't care i'm more about the grower the the actual or how organic it is. I really think it comes down to craft beer or cheap liquor these days, you know? 
Absolutely. And uh, I like outdoor. What I smoke normally is outdoor. And actually the most common strain that I smoke because OG is so strong, I would say more often I smoke Blue Dream. Oh, than nice. OG. Common. We used to say back in the back in the early days, be- uh, beautiful women always like Blue Dream. I don't know why it is. Most like actresses and models would come into the shop. They all wanted Blue Dream. I don't know what it is. Pretty girls just love Blue Dream, but also bald guys like me also. You're love a pretty Blue Dream. girl inside. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but it's great. It's what I use, uh, you know, on a more daily basis. Uh, I wouldn't say I smoke really daily anymore, but uh, the most common strain I smoke is Blue Dream, and it's great for creativity. I mean, as you know, I wrote a book. Um, I can't be all just sleepy and less, <laughs> you know, passed out on the couch if you got to write, you know, no. what thousand. I was going to ask you, tell us about your writing regimen, because I've been doing some writing and getting out packets and stuff. And one thing that I learned was I need to be locked in a room like I literally need to be locked in a room and away from people for like 48 hours. Like I had to stop time for if I had to push something major out and book is like super major like you had to do all of that so tell us about did you do morning rites were you ritual did you fall in and out what was what was the process i would say it took me about 20 years to come up with this process that i have and one of the things about my process is that i've in the last two years have been making my living as an actor so i have the free time to do this but if you have the time to do it you got to do it every day. It's just, uh, for me, it's every day. Consistency is much more important than output. As long as you're always working on it, it'll be fine. Especially when you have a really, really big project. Because one of the things I find gets in the way of your creativity is panic and fear that you're not going to get it done. All this stuff. Oh, I didn't like if you skip your session, you were supposed to do it. And then you're thinking you're wasting all this mental energy thinking, damn it. Why didn't I write this morning? Damn it. Why didn't I write this morning? Damn it. Why didn't I do this? So the way to avoid all that and all that stuff just gets in the gears and stops your flow. And so the best way I have found to do it is just be very consistent, whether you have a half an hour a day to spare or three hours a day to spare, do it every day at least five days a week if you can if not six days a week um and a lot of writers will tell you this Stephen king tells you the same thing um and it's you know it's tough to do it's tough to do but you'll feel so much better once you start once you alleviate that guilt of not doing it that's such a big roadblock for the so whole many- thing yeah i've been doing i was been getting so good with meditation neil I was doing mm-hmm. 20 minutes like every day, especially like during the lockdown. I was doing sure. two 20 minute sessions. But lately, the last couple of weeks I've been on the road. I just did shout out to the Rono Comedy Festival. That was a lot of fun, guys. It was great to see you. Uh, but I've been on the road and shit. So I skipped and then I'll get into it. And it's harder if I'm if I'm out of it. And the same thing with writing. It's, it's like. Once and but there was a point where it just felt like I was just it felt so easy just to sit still for 20 minutes and then it started not to be because I wasn't consistent with it. So I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's really about routine, just doing it every single day if you can. Again, even if it's only for a little bit. But the other thing about how do you do it? Like, do do you have a notebook or do you do computer or you do both? Do you do your phone? 
I do both. So my routine is very set at this point. I write every day from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pretty much without fail, five or six days a week. If I have acting to do, every once in a while, acting will come in. I'll have auditions or I'll get a job or something like that. So it'll take me away from it. But that's why I work a seven-day schedule. So if I do two days of acting in the middle of the week, I write on Saturdays and Sundays to make sure that I'm always doing at least five days a week. And I try to do uh, three hours a day if I can, because after that, then life gets in the way. And that's one of the biggest problems is with trying to be a writer. And I'm very, I live alone. My neighbors are fairly quiet most of the time. Um, and you just have to constantly, and then, but once you're doing that, then throughout the day, things will pop into my head. Oh, that, and I just write it down. So I always have a notebook going with me or my phone and I write the little things down. And then when I start in the morning, if I don't have anywhere to go, if I'm blank, then I go to my notes and I'm like, oh yeah, I was going to write that thing about the third hole, or I was going to write that murder, or I was going to write that thing. So you always have these little things to stimulate you for those times when you have a hard time getting going. Because again, like you said, getting going again, especially after a day or two off, is always the hardest thing. So I like to have little notes around. Yeah, it gets that then- funk in there again, and you're like, eh. yeah, yeah. Well, to shake it off, you know, it takes totally. a moment get back into the world where you are, whether it's your stand-up act or whether it's, you know, screenplay or even a book. And one of the things that Stephen King teaches, and I think it's really, really important as a, if you're writing, especially if you're writing a book or even a screenplay, you don't write every word you have in your head that day until you're exhausted. Always hold back a little bit so that you have somewhere to start the next day, if that makes any sense. Because getting started the next day is so hard. So yeah. instead of writing everything that you have, you write 90% of what you have and you hold yourself 10% for the next day. And you say, all right, now I'm going to start with this next scene. And then you, again, that, that getting started part is so difficult for most people. There are just strategies to try to, to try to get, get it going. And one of the best strategies is to basically don't stop. <laughs> You're just great, always- great explanation. No, that makes a hundred percent uh, sense. And I love hearing everybody, everybody's different and everybody picks up stuff along the way, what works for them. So I think mm-hmm. it's great that, yeah, that you do it in the morning, get it done and then jot notes during the day is, mm-hmm. uh, is, is brilliant. Now, speaking of, you do do stand up. When was the last time you did stand up in LA? What's the vibe? What's the deal? Are you dodging and- Delta? Are you shutting down? I have not done stand-up since before the pandemic. I am sorry to say, uh, I'm excited. Right. but it is really coming back to life and it's great to see it. There's like, it's really weird because before the pandemic, there were so many shows like, I don't know if New York is like this, but there we'll put a show on in, you know what I mean? If there's a back corner of a, of a bookstore or absolutely anywhere, the bathroom of a Starbucks has like two shows and then an open mic. I mean, there were so many shows and of course they all got shut down, which is sad, but now it's like this rebirth and there's all these new comedy shows coming up in new venues hosted by new people or whatever. I just went to my first one the other day here in Highland Park uh, called Space Babes um, at the Offbeat Bar, which has got a, the Offbeat on York here in Highland Park, just for a little local flavor. Word. It has some shows, including Space Babes. And it was so fun to be out there seeing live comedy again. I mean, it was outdoors. Some people were in masks, some people weren't, but it was packed. 
the comics were so excited to be there. There's a certain, it's just like you haven't done it in so long. The, the love is so much more, I feel like the love is more intense. Do you feel like people are so happy to see you and just be out there again when you go perform? Yeah, it's, uh, I think people are there. I mean, stand-up is, stand-up and cannabis are both exploding right now, but the only problem is everybody wants to do it. <laughs> but, uh, but it, it is well needed on both. I think cannabis is well needed for mental health and just, I think a lot of trauma is gonna have been happening during the pandemic and people are coming out of it. And I think people are getting more empathetic and, but I think it's going to help comedy and people, yeah, the shows, people are just, you just need to hit the punchline and they start laughing. So yeah. for me, it's like, I haven't been that consistent. I've been consistent with these, this podcast, the cannabis coffee hour. Thank you, everybody like, and subscribe, like, and subscribe. I'm almost yeah. at 150 episodes consistently. Nice. Uh, so I've been doing this, like, this has been my constant thing, but during the pandemic, I dipped down, I did some. I did some local bar shows here and there, and then I did stuff online, but I did my first uh, headlining set in Virginia, and that was awesome, but it was piecing together like all a couple old things, a couple new things. It's almost like I'm rebuilding everything that I did before, but the muscle memory's all there. Like it's all there, and I've been doing shows here. It's just, uh, yeah, I just hope everything opens up so we can get this running. Yeah, I know. It's nice to see it coming back, but it's a little stop and starty here, too. I mean, it was looking great and then it wasn't looking great. And now but people are just people in L.A. at least have seemed to just we're just going to push forward with with doing this. And everybody's just used to wear. I mean, used to wearing a mask inside. So, you know, yeah, I still not- wear a mask. I like it. I got this new hand sanitizer today that I'm really I got a Dr. Bronner's peppermint. Cause I see funky people. I was in Virginia. Nobody was rocking masks. I took my COVID test t- last night. I got no COVID, but there yeah. was, you could just the feel thing. the funk. I, I, and I don't <laughs> want the funk and I'm not trying to discriminate and I probably will get, the, I don't want to know, but uh, I still rock a mask. I think there was way yeah. too many droplets in the streets before this happened. So yeah. I'm still going to rock my mask and wash my hands and smoke mad cannabis just to block this thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's the way I saw my first concert the other night. Uh, and the uh, one of the what singers. What's that? What concert did you see? I saw Mike Watt. Remember? Oh, Mike yeah. From of the course. Man, of course. He, he played this jazz festival they had here. That's in brilliant. It was amazing. It was the, it was it was Mike Watt and Petra Hayden, who's sort of an avant garde violin player. And they played this great based out freaky jazz that I had never heard before. And like, you know, I'm a deadhead. I love drums and space and all that stuff. So I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing, but it didn't sound like the Minutemen and it didn't sound like any Mike Watt I had ever heard before, but it was absolutely nuts. It was so cool, but he was wearing his mask the whole time. And even when he sang, he wore his mask. It was nuts. It was really fun though. It was so great to see live music again. And I'm going to see the dead at the end of the month on Halloween. So I'm excited oh, about that. Yeah, for real. Where are you seeing him at the Hollywood Bowl? Hollywood Bowl, baby. Don't smoke uh, that Hollywood Bowl, baby. You're gonna yeah, see the great Halloween. company. So we got John Mayer up there rocking out. We got we got we got we got, we got Bobby, right? Yeah. 
We got uh, so there's three three remaining dead members. It's Bob Weir, uh, yeah. and then John Mayer takes uh, the Jerry Garcia role, and he is absolutely amazing. I know everybody's got a lot of skeptical is very skeptical, but I tell you, all you have to do is see him once, and you'll love it. I've seen him probably about ten or twelve times now. Um, but then they got the original I've seen video of it. Yeah, his he has such a good blues guitar. His guitar his guitar licks are just so good that he can handle the job. Yeah. Oh. He can do well. He just has that Jerry Garcia sound. And if you're a deadhead, one of the things I mean, I can't speak for all deadheads, but one of the things for me is that it's the particular Jerry Garcia sound that you just fall in love with. And when you hear John Mayer play, it gives you that exact, not that exact same feeling, but so close to it. It just goes like a loose, bluesy, weird. Yeah, it's like yeah. Kind of funky. Yeah, but it's also it's it's high end. Yeah, but they're they're a really they they seem so re-energized. It's so great. So on base, yeah, everybody have- loves them these days. I love them. Like they are an American. You know, it's like watch. It's like seeing the Natural Bridge. You know, it's like an American. You know, uh, phenomenon. American brilliant brilliant piece of art. You know, it's just it's a trip that they're still alive. It's like seeing I- play. I always like to say that, you know, uh, The Grateful Dead is a fantastic introduction into American music, period, because they play so many different genres. They play blues, they play country, they play psychedelic, which they helped sort of invent, but they do pretty much and rock every- and roll and a lot of soul and even Lots. got some disco numbers. And then they Lots. do some weird freestyle rapping thing early on. Do you know about this? Like it well, was wearing drums and pig pen like they would go out there and they would just spiel free form am i, yeah. am I right or wrong pig pen raps and that's in my book the big snooze actually pig pen plays a plays a big part in the in the plot of the big snooze and i talk about how wonderful uh they were they were a different band when pig explain was- to the the listeners who pig pen was and right. then we'll sign off with that okay because okay. we're right at 50 minutes Cool, man. Cool, man. So uh, Pigpen was actually the original uh, lead singer of The Grateful Dead. He was a blues man, uh, played the harmonica, played a little bit of keyboard or whatever, drank a shitload of whiskey, which is why he died in 1972. But he was a tr- he dated Janis Joplin, was a true blues man. And they uh, there used to be a thing called the Pigpen Rap when the band would be playing and they would the band would sort of bring it down low and he would just start talking to the audience and he would actually hook members of the audience up with each other. He would set people up on dates like, yo, man, where's your old lady at? And they'd be like, I ain't got no old lady pig. And he'd be like, oh, well, this woman over here looks like she wants to meet you. And he would hook people up and it would go on for 15, 20 minutes. And he would just sort of, it was sort of a stylized patter, kind of a showman rap, kind of a circusy kind of a thing. But it was it was always a feature. Of- yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just doing a it- little call and response, freestyle, jazz style. All this music is in the ether, you know, and like once it yeah. gets named and categorized, but all this stuff has been happening. And uh, like you said, like, I think the Grateful Dead kind of tapped into all of it somewhere around. They were just a funky, electric, uh, psychedelic uh, jug band. Yeah, I mean, it's They're the been- second best American jug band. But you know yeah. what, what is the number one American jug band in the world is. Who's that? Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Oh, man, I got to get myself up on that one. I don't know. You know, you don't know who Emmett Otter is? No, who's Emmett Otter? Oh, it's Jim Henson did this HBO puppet 
uh, Christmas fable, and it was about these otters that were in a jug band. But some of the best, uh, I forget, the, the guy who sang Over the Rainbow did all the music, like some of the best music in the world. Check it out. It's, I got it on DVD. This Christmas, everybody, including Cornelius Peter, check out uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Nice. Uh, the, I think the original name of the Grateful Dead was uh, was the Warlocks. But then there was uh, I think they called themselves an uptown jug band, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like they that. were like in the jug band. This is what this thing yeah. was, man. You get you get the <laughs> get the washboard, you get the washboard going, you get your man on the jug. Yeah. And then you get the uh, wash tub base with the with the, with the wash tub in the uh, in the broom. This is the broom. <laughs> that's the shit man that is the shit but i can't wait to check out the big snooze your book cornelius thank you so much for being on the cannabis coffee hour do you want to tell anybody the good people of the internet super universe out there what it's all about well i just wanted to thank you for having me on this has been a lot of fun so yeah please pick up the big snooze it's a murder mystery it's funny it's like agatha christie meets caddyshack um, and if you like the Grateful Dead, there's a lot of fun surprises in it for you. But I think a lot of people, even if you don't know anything about golf or the Grateful Dead, if you just like funny books, having a good time, you're looking for something to read, you can pick it up on Amazon. It's called The Big Snooze. Uh, and I really hope you enjoy it. Oh, I can't wait to check it out, my man. Uh, I'm going to pick one up on Amazon right now and read it. Uh, I'm trying okay. to do one book a month. So this will be a good one. Uh, so thank you so much, Cornelius. Uh, peace and love, everybody. Cornelius Thanks. Peter. All right. Thanks, Rob. All right. Peace. Peace. Trapaholics Mixtapes. Trapaholics Mixtapes.